So join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Just one verse, single verse expositions is what I'm gonna do. I've entitled this, The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange. And we're going to dive in and we're gonna unpack almost every single word in The Great Exchange. Sometimes it's good for us just to stop and think about the gospel. That's what Christmas does for our culture. Um, I'd also encourage you to invite people in the next you know, three to four weeks. In particular, people are a little more attuned, your friends, your schoolmates, uh, co-ops, uh, buddies you work with, ladies you have go to the gym with, whatever. Invite people to church. Invite them here, because I can guarantee you I'll be pounding away at the gospel for all of us. So it'll be a great opportunity to kind of, it'd be easy for you to just invite some people. They can hang out afterwards. We're gonna have the best homemade Christmas snacks you've ever had. Thanks, Dish. And uh, we're, gonna, uh, we're gonna just have a good time together. So anyway, the great exchange. Do you mind if I read it first? I usually give an introduction. I'm just gonna read it first because this goes into the Mount Rushmore of verses uh, for Christmas in my estimation. This is my opinion, but I really do believe it's so. This is the Apostle Paul writing in the second letter to the Corinthian church. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. In the 14th century, there was a devastating, the, the most well-known and the most pervasive plague that ever hit this world. It was called the Black Death. Lasted from 1348 to 1351. Four years, the Black Death swept through medieval Europe. It claimed its death toll, 75 million. Just to give you context, we experienced kind of a global pandemic and that took 6.9 million lives. So 75 million, 6.9. Just to show you the devastation of this particular plague, 60% of Europe uh, was on that death toll, 60%. And the reason why they called it a black death is because it would create these oozing tumors that would uh, turn black. And so that's why they called it the black death. And you can historically read about this, use Wikipedia and check it out. Um, but it was, it was devastating. And the way it was transmitted later, they didn't know at the time, but later they discovered, scientists discovered that it had this bacteria or bacilli that was in fleas and it was transported on rodents all through uh, Europe. It started on the Silkway, the trade routes, moved into the European trade routes and just devastated. And what this bacteria would do is it would clog the stomach of the flea, it would bite its host and then regurgitate the bacilli, this bacteria, and then it would spread. From the time you got it to death, seven days. It was lethal, it was comprehensive, it was dark. As a matter of fact, the people said, this has to be a punishment from God. It was so, so devastating. As horrific as the Black Plague was, and I want you to go read it about it and see it, as horrific as it was, there's another plague that gets all of us, 100% all of us. Nobody is exempt. It's indeed 100% fatal. 
It has physical effects and it has eternal effects. It is the plague of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's the ultimate of plagues and it's what this verse comes to remind us about. Furthermore, the scripture says there's none righteous, no, not one. And then in another section of the same book of Romans, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You talk about a plague. That's the plague I want to address and provide a solution for so that you might understand the power and the beauty of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So the scriptures teach that we are all sinners by nature, right? And by choice, by nature and by action. Now we don't all sin equally and we don't all sin to our fullest, but we are sinners by nature and by choice or nature and by our actions. This goes way back folks, right? To Genesis, Genesis chapter three in particular, Adam and Eve were on top of the world. They, they were living their best life now in the garden and uh, pretty innocent. It was awesome at the time. Adam then threw off one day his responsibility as both a husband, a man, and a leader. Eve followed the snake, Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. The result of all that is you catapulted the entire human race in your biblical theology, you catapult the entire human race into sin. When Adam sinned, he did it with eyes wide open. And he actually probably thought there isn't a lot of consequences. I mean, what is my sin? How will my sin affect the, the, those that come behind me, those that are all before me? And what he did is he alienated all of us. And he alienated all of us by nature and by choice from God. Listen to Romans 5. I'm gonna read it for you, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That one act is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is describing. It's how we're justified. It's how we can be no longer alienated from God, but we can be the righteous and come to God. And so because of Adam's sin, everyone in the human race is plagued with sin and alienation from God. Even today, Romans 1 would call it suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It continues on. Generationally, people suppress the truth in righteousness. We are therefore alienated from God by nature and by our actions. And that's a huge problem. That sin problem you have to deal with. I have to deal with. It has to be dealt with. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us how God has dealt with it. We are in desperate need this morning, all of us, of reconciliation to God. If not, hell will await you. You have to be reconciled to God. And so in the text this morning, you have the cure for sin that destroys all of mankind. Good news though, it's in the text. Good news, there's hope this morning. And that's always the first week of Advent is hope. 
I come bearing good news. I come bearing great news this morning because of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And the plan is designed by God and accomplished by God. He actually predetermined the plan. He predetermined how to reconcile us to himself. I would say, as we approach this verse, it might be the most profound verse in all of the New Testament, for sure. It's 15 words in the Greek language. The New Testament's written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and it's smattered with about two and a half chapters of Aramaic. In the Greek language, it's 15 words. These 15 words should bring you so much hope this morning. They're the sweetest 15 words I could find for Christmas. It's the sweetest 15 words that I could come out of the gate December, first week of December with so that we can understand the mystery, which we sang about earlier, the mystery of reconciliation, the beauty of reconciliation. Here we discover that God no longer is gonna impute judgment and penalty to our sin if we will trust in Christ alone. He doesn't you know, forgive our sin by overlooking it. There had to be a just punishment. It's called penal substitution. Something had to die. Something has to pay for our sin, and he sent his sinless son to be payment, right? He crushed his own son. I know there's some dads in here. Do you have a category? If you have a son of giving up your son for a bunch of hoodlums like us, I don't have that category. I, don't, I can't even imagine. I have two boys. I can't imagine the category you say, hey, dang, just give us one of your sons. He's gonna die for everyone in Medford. I don't know if I have a category for that. God did. He sent his one and only son. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son for the forgiveness of sin. So God's mercy and grace, it can encompass anyone. There's nobody out of the reach of God, nobody out of the reach of this particular text this morning, right? From the gathering demoniac of Mark 5 to Paul saying, I'm the chief of sinners, this text is pervasive. This is how it's done. This is how you get reconciled to God. And if you're not reconciled to God, we'd encourage you to be reconciled today. It is the most significant decision one has to process is being reconciled to God. This is a significant, significant text centered on God. There are two clauses in here that I want to point out. Just two. They are life-altering and they should engender or produce in us hope. This is a hope-filled text, a high Christology about why Jesus came. Why did he come well, Paul says, for our sake he came. He made him to be sin. He didn't even know sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's gonna happen this morning is you're gonna go behind the scenes and you're gonna go backstage to the doctrine of reconciliation. And you're gonna see reconciliation. You're gonna understand substitution. Uh, you're, you're gonna see justification. You're gonna see it all. It's such a dense thing thick word it's one you want to commit to memory it is it is when you're laying on bed at night and you go you know it is him he 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 came he, he gave his life the sinless one for the sinful many that's crazy right i mean that's what is mind-blowing that's what exalts we exalt in worship because of verses like this 
So there's two clauses, so there's two points to this sermon, one verse. You ready to go? Number one, Christ made him sin. That's point one. Christ made him sin. Listen, folks, only God could design and execute a plan of reconciliation with himself. We don't have the means because we're all sinners and we've all come short and, and we're dead. The Bible says when you're dead, you can't, you can't do anything to awaken that. It has to be an act of God, right? He didn't have to save us. He didn't. He created us, but he didn't have to save us, but he chose to save us. And so he designed uh, Peter would say in that first sermon in Acts 3, he said he, it was the predetermined plan of God. It was always in his mind, I'm gonna save him. I'm gonna reconcile him and I'm gonna do it with my own son, right? He didn't do that with the angels, Peter says, right? He didn't spare the angels. He could have, but he didn't. But he did you, he did me, he did us, right? And so God reached out to us. He reached, he takes the first step. You, if left to yourself, would never take a first step towards God. You wouldn't, I wouldn't. And so it says he, God is the antecedent in that first word. For our sake, he, who? God, God of the universe put in plan, put in, in play a plan. He architected the plan. It was his idea this is what's so mind-boggling about a high Christology. This was also an unassisted plan of God. It's not by your help, right? Man is incapable of reconciliation with God. God took the first step and he reconciles us, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved by faith. That not of yourselves, right? It's entirely a gift of God. He was the originator and architect of the plan. It was predetermined, right? And you might look at it on face, and as we read the Christmas story, as we move into the 24th of December, we're gonna look at a crowd that was absolutely trying to kill him, soldiers that, that beat him, religious leaders that participated in all of that, and even the killing of Jesus. You think they killed him. Those people killed him, or the religious elite killed him, or... The soldiers killed him. Well, they might have been involved in the physical act, but that, folks, was a predetermined plan of God. Jesus was born to die, right? So we celebrate the birth, but the birth goes with the crucifixion and the resurrection, right? It's the whole season. I mean, we focus on one piece of the puzzle, but I'm telling you, it was God said, I can only reconcile these people to myself. It can only be a perfect substitute, a perfect atonement, right? An unblemished lamb sat on the altar, a one-year-old male lamb that only thing could do it, that's Jesus. I'm gonna have to send my own son. It was God behind it all. It was God behind the scenes. God crushed his son. Do you understand the implications of that, dads? I don't have a category for it. I presume you might not either. And so the text says, for our sake, for your sake, sir, for your sake, ma'am. And I know we can get distracted and a lot of things going on around us, but let me tell you, it doesn't get any sweeter than this. This is how you kick off December, right? I mean, I'm gonna eat some serious cookies this afternoon, but I'm just telling you, this, this is way better. This is gargantuan compared to that, right? And then the text says, he says, for his sake, he made him to be sin. 
What does that mean? Let's talk about it. What does it mean? The one who knew no sin, he made him to be sin. It's the most explicit statement in all of scripture on the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Now, in theology, there's a big word that's attached to it. I want you to be aware of it. It's called the impeccability of Christ. It's a whole doctrine that Christ never sinned. Impeccability because he couldn't sin in order to be the sacrifice, in order to do the reconciliation. So they're all connected, daisy chain together. He was the perfect mediator, the perfect substitute for sin, and there has to be penal substitution. The punishment has to be for the justice of God to be satisfied. It has to be in play, right? It's both inward and outward he is impeccable. Jesus is perfect, inward and outward. He's the the perfect for the imperfect. You could say it in shorthand, the perfect for the imperfect. So Jesus was uniquely qualified to effect the necessary atonement for our necessary reconciliation back to God. He was the spotless, guiltless, holy, undefiled, right? So Jesus was tapped as the second person of the Trinity to become a man, Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. Not merely a man, but actually a man. He was 100% God and 100% man. There are no perfect second Adams, as we sang this morning. There are no perfect second Adams outside of Jesus. It had to be a God man. It had to be someone perfect. And we've all sinned and fallen short. None of us qualify, right? None of us would make the cut. Now, Jesus would have a human mother and no earthly father. He was the son of God. And he would fulfill the Old Testament picture of the necessary unblemished lamb, sacrificial lamb. He became the holy sacrifice for the sins of everyone who would ever believe throughout history. He's the lamb on the cross like the lamb on the altar in the New Testament. At that very moment, he who knew no sin, a perfect sacrifice. That doesn't mean... Folks, he didn't know sin. So let's get technical. Doesn't mean he didn't know sin. Being God, he knew of the heinousness of sin. At times, Jesus would pray against sin. At times, he suffered for sin. At times, he forgave sin. At times, he exposed sin. Yet he never sinned. He never sinned. He knew the full weight of sin. He knew the full weight of the temptation to to sin. But he could not commit it himself. He never had what we would call the experiential knowledge of sin. He knew its temptation, its ferocity. In Matthew 4, when he's swept away into the wilderness and, and faced the devil himself, he knew the ferocity of it, but experientially he never knew it, right? It was impossible for him to sin if he was gonna be the lamb and he was gonna be the sacrifice, and he was gonna reconcile to God, he couldn't sin. If we were gonna become the righteousness of God in Christ, then he couldn't have sinned. So his sinlessness is universally, listen to this, universally affirmed position of scripture. It's the universal opinion of scripture. All of scripture says he was sinless, let me just quote a couple. 1 John 2, 5, in him is no sin. 1 Peter 2, 22, 
who committed no sin, nor was there any guile in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15. He was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Luke 23, it's a great chapter to go read between games this afternoon. Um, because in there, 41, 47, 46, all the different people that are around the crucifixion, they can't understand why people are doing this. They said, even the thief on the cross said, this man is innocent, let him go. Everyone says he's innocent. There, wasn't, there was nobody in the community who said, listen, he's crazy. You know, he sinned, I've seen him sin. I've seen him you know, ha, you know, get angry. I've seen him frustrated. No, he is the sinless sacrifice. And that's exactly what Paul says. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. It had to be that way. It's, it's the plan, right? And he became sin on our behalf. What does that mean? How does the sinless one die for the sinless, sinful many? How does this work? If he's the sinless son of God, how does he become sin on our behalf? Well, first and foremost, let's walk through this. He was not made a sinner on the cross. He was made to know sin, he knew sin, but he wasn't made a sinner. Some would contend with that. He was made sin, he wasn't made sinful, is how you would describe that. Not for one moment did he cease to be righteous. He was not a victim. He chose this self-humiliation, right? He said, nobody, I laid my, down my life. Nobody took my life. I laid down my life. I'm, I'm part of this predetermined plan that I'm gonna reconcile people back to God. It has to be sinless. He didn't die for his own sin. In other words, he died for our sin on the cross, when did that happen? During those three dark hours on the cross, during those three dark hours, all of our sins were laid upon his righteous life. God treated him like he was a sinner, although he had never actually sinned. It's the doctrine of imputation. He imputed our sin to Christ's righteous life. He never was a sinner. He treated him like he was a sinner. He treated Christ like we deserved to be treated, right? We deserve death and hell. We deserve to be treated, but he treated his own son like that. He experienced the full wrath of God, Matthew 27 and verse 46. All the penalty, all the wrath, all the judgment was laid upon him. He became our substitute as only he could, and that's the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. See how loaded this text is and how heavy it is he tr God treated him like we deserve to be treated he was our sin offering he was our way to be reconciled to God that's why we say you must come through Jesus Christ it's exclusivity Jesus said I am the way the truth the life there's no other way it's the exclusivity of Jesus and honestly it's the ultimate expression of love to crush your own son who was perfect, who didn't deserve it for those who did deserve it. Do you see the beauty and the glory and imputation and substitution that precedes this great reconciliation in the text? It's unbelievable, right? Jesus was conscious of God's wrath. You, you sensed it 
by his hesitation, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what was coming, right? He felt it. He's like, man, this is not good. They, they, all those, those around him said he was sinless. You know, he didn't deserve any of it. But he paid for it. He atoned for our sin. We deserve the sentence. He took the sentence. He took our debt. Jesus, Isaiah says, bore our sins. Is that not awesome? Is that not the best word of hope that we could have this morning? And he did it willingly. Nobody took his life, and he did it voluntarily. So God sends his one and only son who volitionally says, I'll do it if it means I can reconcile them back to you, God. I'll do it. I'll take on their sin, and I'll cover it with my righteousness, right? God treated him like every sinner, even though he was never ever ever a sinner he was personally pure but he became forensically for these three hours guilty of all the sins in this world isn't that crazy and so reconciliation this necessary reconciliation happens through this imputation of God laying on the sinless one our sin the father charged Jesus account for your sin and for my sin the sinless one became sin for us. That alone is enough to stop you in your tracks this morning, right? I mean, just thinking through that, I know it's a little technical and I want you to think deeply, but that's the reality of what we're celebrating. That's what makes Christmas so awesome. You didn't deserve this. God took the first step. He sent his son. We're gonna celebrate on the 24th, but he sent his son to die for our sin. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin and he never knew sin. Now, if there was a period there and stop and there was just one clause, I think we would all be like, Ross, come up here, strike the band, let's rock and roll. Like, this is good. Like, that's enough. I mean, that's enough right there, right? But he doesn't. He goes on. Because there's a great exchange. And I say great because Christmas time we do gift exchanges sometimes, right? You know how we do it. We say, hey, keep it under 10 bucks. Don't get crazy, you know what I'm saying? We, in family, we were just generous, but we say, hey, keep it. It's kind of like keep it all nice and flat. You know, it's our version of communism at Christmas. I keep it flat, nobody bring anything about 10. This, this is the greatest exchange. This is way better. Our exchanges may be a picture of this and they may associate that for you, but this is the ultimate. This is the great exchange. So the apostle Paul doesn't stop there. He wants you to see the whole doctrine of salvation all into this single verse and so we are introduced to the second great clause. Look at it. It's, it's punctuated by a so that. It's a, what we call in Greek a henna clause. It's for this reason. For this reason. God did this for this. Look at it. So that in him, Jesus, we can become the righteousness of God. Forensic and real justification. It gets better, right? It gets crazy good now. So my second point is this, sinners are made righteous. Second point, sinners are made righteous for the purpose of, and he gets into it. We become the righteousness of God in him. What he's talking about is a transaction. That's why we call it the great exchange. Jesus took your sin and you should be grateful for that. But it goes way further than that. He then exchanged his righteous life 
for your sin. So now when God sees you, guess who he sees? Jesus. He, that's why you're a child of God. That's why you're a son in the family of God. The great exchange. His righteousness to us, our sin to him. It's the best deal going. It's the sweetest exchange I can do. It's like the positive side of brutal imputation. Imputation, the dying for our sin is brutal. You, you know about the cross. We'll celebrate that in the spring in, in density, but you know about that. You know how brutal it is. But in there, there's hope because you get the righteousness of Christ through that. And that's why in theology, we call it alien righteousness. You ever heard the term alien righteousness? The reason why they call it alien righteousness in the study of theology, because it's not from you. It's God. It's Jesus' righteousness applied to your sin account. It's like he's saying, debt's canceled out, all gone. All sin, past, present, future sin, gone. That's why we're here at Christmas. God credits Christ's righteousness to your sinful count, right? So on the cross, he bore our curse, right? And then he says, I'll impute that righteousness to you. You're made righteous, and that's the doctrine of justification. That's the doctrine of justification. Our sins are reckoned to him, and his righteousness are reckoned to us. John MacArthur, I think, says it best. It's the single statement he said. I've remembered it, wrote it down here for you, but I think he says it best. Listen to this. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe. Let me say that again. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe. That's the doctrine of justification. This is entirely a plan of God to reconcile. He came looking for you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Man, it's unbelievable. His sinless death atones for our sinful lives. And we are granted this alien, undeserved, righteous status with God. When he looks down at us, he sees his own son. That to me is mind-boggling. It's hard to get my mind around this alien righteousness. And we know his shed blood washed away our stains and our sins. That's just crazy. We're not made righteous in the sense that we're never touched by sin again, right? Because we're still in this, we're still incarcerated in this flesh and bone, right? Keep in mind, that doesn't mean you never sin, but when viewed, you're viewed through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification doesn't eliminate your need for sanctification, right? And so you work out your salvation. The same guy writing this verse says, hey, but you better work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Day by day, right? You're becoming more like Christ. You're becoming more judicially what you are judicially in Christ. You're becoming more like Christ. This is the grandeur of progressive sanctification. This is why you have all these doctrines colliding together here. It doesn't mean you're never gonna sin when you sin. You, you're forgiven. God sees you forensically as righteous because you're covered by Jesus' righteous blood on the cross, but it doesn't mean you don't still have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is an ongoing process. We're in the in-between, between justification 
and glorification, there's sanctification. And one day, one day, hopefully not too far off, one day you will see him face to face and you'll be like him. You know, you'll be forgiven and you'll be clean and you won't have to, you know, wrestle with all this sin. And so we live in this not yet. It's an ongoing process of sanctification is in here. And so justification and sanctification merge in eternity. And they become one. And that's called glorification. And so we're to live out, though, we're to live out our our position in Christ. You're positionally righteous. You may not feel it, but positionally you are because you had nothing to do with your salvation. Jesus accomplished your salvation for you, right? We're positionally righteous. We claim to be justified. Therefore, we should live righteously, 1 Corinthians 15, right? Live righteously, and we're to become ambassadors. Look at verse 18. Paul says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, now we're ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, actually. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then he, he dismounts. You, ever, you know, like in the, the Olympics, you know, when they're going down the balance beam and they're tune, 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 and you're like, ah, it's the end. Boom, they stick the landing. And we're like, ah. that's verse 21. It's the, ah. it's the celebration. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange it's the greatest news. It's the greatest hope I can bring you. And it's not even just cosmetic. I mean, he changes all of our lives, right? Jesus just isn't interested in being a part of life, your life. He wants to be your whole life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. It's not just cosmetic. It's not like I just look like a Christian. It's total transformation. And now go the next step. He, guess what he gets, you get to be? You get to be a, a, an ambassador of reconciliation. And that's what you do. You go around to your neighbors and you knock on them and say, hey, Christmas time, here's some cookies. And hey, you want to know how to be reconciled to God? And you just read 2 Corinthians 5, 21. said, you've got to have that. Because if you don't have that, you're going to split hell wide open, pal. You may want to be a little more generous and gracious than the, I was just there. Right? We're actively engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because we've been reconciled. You've been, you've been graced. You've, you've experienced the mercy of God. You understand theologically imputation. You understand alien righteousness. You understand penal substitution and all these great doctrines all tucked into this single powerful, powerful verse. Can I ask you, have you been reconciled to God? Right? Paul says, examine yourselves. Socrates said, an unexamined life, it's really not worth living. So we all need to pause from time to time when we hear the gospel. Have I experienced that kind of, recon am I reconciled to God? You should ask first there, stop there, right? And say, am I, am I reconciled to God? And when you understand that verse and it's real and 
you know you're in Christ, then you get to be a part of the ministry of reconciliation. You get to tell other people how they can be reconciled to God. And you can go up to them and say, hey, look, I got reconciled to God three weeks ago. Can I teach you how to be reconciled to God? Like, who doesn't want to be, who wants to be alienated from God? No one. We have the ministry. All of you are ministers of reconciliation. Put it on your business card. Minister of reconciliation. Don't do that. Could be a little weird. I love it because God made a way. He chose it. He architected the plan. He put in motion the plan, sent his own son. I mean, isn't that crazy how good God is? And to me, when I think of Christmas, that's what makes my heart beat. That's what makes me jump out of my skin like that. And one verse, you can sit and meditate around the dinner table tonight, have a cup of tea this afternoon if you're from, from Germany. You know, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can sit there and go, that is the most incredible, incredible theology and verse. Acts 4, verse 12, and I'll close. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you can be saved than the name of Jesus. Trust him. Give your life to him. If you've given your life to him, get in the ministry. Get off the sidelines and get in the field. Get in the arena and start telling people. Let's invite a ton of people next week and we'll continue in our Advent series. But this week, it doesn't get any sweeter. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Is that not beautiful? It's the perfect Christmas text. Let's pray and then immediate transition to the Lord's table. Is that fair? Now we're gonna celebrate it. Physically, we're gonna celebrate it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Paul's mighty verse. It does fit in our Mount Rushmore of Christmas verses. It is beautiful. It is captivating. It's inspiring. It provides hope and joy to know you're forgiven and you had nothing to do with it. Father, thank you for sending your own son. Thank you for loving us enough, loving us enough to invade this world and to send the, your one and only son, the second person of the Trinity, to die who not, not even sinned, never sinned, couldn't sin. He was perfect, the spotless Lamb of God who on the altar gave his life. Everyone around him said he was innocent. We're so thankful that we experience this alien righteousness now. And that when you see us, you don't see our wretchedness, you see your own son. Lord, help us with progressive sanctification. Help us try to get our sanctification caught up with our justification. It's a battle. And as Bob taught this morning on the Holy Spirit, we need your Spirit's help and aid. We cannot do it in our own strength. And Lord, as we turn our hearts towards the crucifixion, the full gamut this morning, we want to celebrate and honor you with the Lord's table. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.